Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to The Rest is History. Now today for me and I imagine for many of you it's a very, very special day. The 17th of March every year I wake with a song in my heart, with the music of the harps resounding in my ears, with the laughter of children because it is of course Tom Holland, our favourite day. It's St Patrick's Day isn't it? It is a day in which we celebrate a great British saint. <laughs> very good. So Tom, St Patrick's Day, um, Everybody all over the world sort of knows or, or thinks they know. We all think we know what happened with St. Patrick. So to sort of to, to, to give you the kind of caricatured version, you know, the Roman Empire falls, the Dark Ages, an age of obscurantism and violence and stuff. I know you don't agree with that, so don't interrupt. Um, so that descends. And then St. Patrick, in my mind, um, probably wrongly, I've always thought of him as a Welshman uh, or maybe a Cumbrian goes over to Ireland, he kicks out the snakes, converts them all to, <laughs> to Christianity. Three-leaf clover. Yeah, there's shamrocks involved. Yeah. He, he comes to and fro, there's pirates, there's all kinds of shenan- amusing shenanigans. He dies. Tremendous figure for Ireland. Everyone loves him. Later Guinness. on, they, they start having parades Parties. in America. Yeah, yeah, it's all people wearing those sort of terrible comedy beards and yeah. green hats. And, and actually, a lot of Irish people find that immensely patronizing and annoying. But that, to me, and I think to most people listen to this, is the image of St. Patrick. Now, am I right in thinking, I, I believe I am, that this is largely balderdash? Well, um, th- there are certain trace elements of, factual, right. of fact in that. Right. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a complicated story, but it's fascinating for everything that makes it complex. Okay. So he, Patrick did exist. Just... Patrick definitely existed, but there may, for instance, have been two Patricks. Oh, that's so exciting! That's, that's just one of the uh, the many the many ambiguities, the ambivalences, the uncertainties, the paradoxes that surround and constitute the, the story. Par- the historical. It's all about Patrick. paradoxes with you, Tom. As always, it on this is. podcast. Yeah. But before we get into all that, there is something else that is absolutely sensational and spectacularly exciting about this episode, Tom. Because do you know what today also marks? Is it by any chance? Our very first specially sponsored episode. It is. Now, we're no, listeners will know, we are absolutely no strangers to um, promotional activities. We make no apology for it. We love it. Um, we, we can't get enough of it. And if people want to encourage more such activities, they are very welcome to do so. Now, our friends at Beer 52, who regular listeners will remember, they um, are offering a case of, a free case, a free case, Tom, of eight Irish beers for St. Patrick's Day. And do you know what? They have sent some for us to try. Which is brilliant because we're recording this at 10 o'clock in the morning. So it's like being at the airport. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but it's much better than going to a Weatherspoons. There's absolutely no doubt about that. (laughs) It absolutely is. So, um, right. So I think we should um, celebrate this sponsorship, Dominic, by um, toasting the morning. Yeah, top of the morning. And try one. Yeah, very good. So we have one here. Uh, It's from um, 
Sligo's White Hag. Well, you want that is... White Hag? <laughs> Brilliant name. So I'm three deep already, Tom. I'm on. Uh, I've moved Your on New to Engl- the New England IPA. I've moved in. No, I've moved on to the uh, Oh Brother Brewing Milk Stout. Very tasty. You can go to beer52.com slash Ireland to claim your free case. You only have to pay for the postage, which is £5.95. So that's beer52.com forward slash Ireland. So, Tom, while you're sipping your beer, we have to get into the topic, the thorny issue of St. Patrick. And we've had lots of questions from our listeners about this. Uh, And basically, the question they all want to know is, who is St. Patrick and did he really exist? So, off you go. He did exist. Uh, And this is precisely what makes... The topic's so interesting. So, Dominic, we we did an episode on King Arthur. Yeah. And we talked about how it is perhaps legitimate to talk about the 5th and 6th centuries in Britain and even more Ireland as being a dark age in the sense that we know nothing about it, really. We don't have a, very many sources for it. However, what we have with Patrick is someone who wrote not one, but two pieces of writing yeah. that shed a, a kind of glimmering faint light on the otherwise complete darkness of this period in terms of the written sources. And so he is a figure of enormous significance, not just for the history of Britain and Ireland, but actually for the whole study of the collapse of the Roman Empire and the period that um, Peter Brown, the great historian, uh, called late antiquity. Right. So in a sense... We also did an episode on Muhammad. You could situate Patrick in the same kind of world that gives rise to Muhammad. He is a a holy man in an age when people are are very prone to showing respect for holy men. And what these holy men do is that they they tend to go to regions, to areas that are kind of remote from where they've grown up. So if you think of, of Muhammad leaving Mecca, going to Medina... You think of monks going from kind of settled regions out into the wilds, into the deserts. The story of Patrick is that he goes from um, Roman Britain, a Roman settlement, and he goes to the wild barbarism, as it seems to him, of Ireland. And this is part of a kind of a, a churn that will help to facilitate the, the transformation of the Roman world into the early medieval world. And it's, I think it's it's a completely fascinating topic. I mean, having flagged that up, I then have to say that um, it's also a complex you're, topic. You're going to qualify what you've said. Yeah, because again, as with Muhammad, we talked about this, that the stories that are told of Muhammad several centuries later may not necessarily map onto the reality of the historical Muhammad. The same okay. is true with Patrick. So we do have these very, very kind of early texts written by him. But then, of course, we have subsequent traditions, subsequent accounts and the question of how reliable they are as evidence for the, the historical Patrick is an absolutely yeah. live issue. It's very like the story of James Callaghan, uh, Tom. Now, <laughs> yes, um, mythic figure. Let's uh, let's 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 get to the nitty gritty. So, when do we think St Patrick is born? When and where? Am I right in thinking he is a late antique Melvin Bragg? Well, so does he come from Cumbria? Let's well, so let's look at. at, at the two pieces of writing, and the key one really is his confessio, which isn't exactly confession. It's a kind of an account of his life. Yeah. Um, infuriatingly, from the point of view of the historian, a, a substantial proportion of this is um, kind of wove. It's it's a tapestry woven out of fragments of the Bible. So there are kind of like almost four hundred biblical allusions in it. Yeah. And that is the focus for Patrick. Uh, and the biographical details are relevant only insofar as they sustain his sense, you know, they help him to explain his sense of mission and his understanding of Christ. However, there are clues. So what he says is that um, his grandfather, Potitus, was a, a priest, a presbyter, and that his father, Calpurnius, was um, a deacon. So again, a kind of a, a priest within the church, but also a decurion which is a, a kind of, he sits on the curia, which is the local town or city council. Yeah. So what he's describing there is the infrastructure of Roman Britain. And Tom, just to quickly jump in, this is at a point when Christianity is the state religion at this point? Yeah, it's, so it's in the aftermath of, of Constantine's conversion. Christianity has definitely yeah. spread to Britain. Yeah. Um, how far is much debated, and the evidence of Patrick's life is kind of shed, you know, sheds a light on that perhaps. But what we see there 
certainly is that Patrick, so Patricia, his name, Patricius, you know, it's patrician. It's a Roman word, redolent of kind of nobility. So he's upper class. Yeah. His, his father and his grandfather are figures of moment. They are part of the civic government of Roman Britain, but they are also figures within the church. And so that suggests the way in which church and um, the kind of the civic the civic uh, structure of cities is starting to to meld and mesh. They're sort of interwoven, yeah, yeah. And civic government in cities, you know, is basically dependent on the existence of a, a broader provincial Roman provincial structure. So the implication is that he's born into a province that is still Roman. Okay, because I just wanted to pick up on that because when we did our when did the Roman Empire fall podcasts a few weeks ago. There was a sense that Britain was slightly semi-detached uh, as you entered the fifth century, but you're sort of saying that the life of St. Patrick implies that Roman structures are still actually very deeply embedded. And if this is Cumbria, you know, it's a long way from Rome. I mean, it's a long way from the. Well, maybe it's not Cumbria. Are you can. Yeah. Tell so we'll come to. So we're. Yeah. It. It does. It implies that there are. Um, Offices that people take on local city councils or town councils. Um, Patrick's father ha- seems to have, he has land, he has slaves. So this is very much still a slave owning yeah. property society. This does, this does not seem to be uh, a land that is collapsing into anarchy and barbarism. So uh, there are implications that Roman civic life is continuing to function. So presumably yeah. this is either the late fourth century or the the first decade of the of the fifth century. Now, the question of where it is, uh, and there's been a number of questions on that, haven't there? Um, so, fa- Father Darren J. Zainal, uh, I've heard claims he's from several different places. Where is he really from? Okay, so what again? What Patrick tells us is that he's from a place called Banavem Tabernii. Tabernii is kind of shops, you know, taverns. It's places yeah. that sell things. Uh, Banavem. We can't be certain where that is. So there have been various theories. One of them is that it's uh, a fort that was known to the Romans as Banner, a horn in Celtic on Hadrian's Wall, now known mm-hmm. as Bird Oswald. Uh, another theory is that it's Carlisle, which was a kind of a civic centre um, just south of Hadrian, well, pretty much on Hadrian's Wall, actually. Yeah. However, there's a problem there, which you put your finger on, which is that this is indeed a very, very remote kind of frontier region. And so far as we know, there are no villas. There's no evidence for any villas that far north. So yeah. that would imply that he, Patrick, wasn't in fact, I think, from Cumbria. Uh, there's another theory, <laughs> which um, is a much later one, which is that he was um, he came from Glastonbury. That seems uh, a bit too good to be true, Tom. It it, it does. Um, also, that he's buried there. Right. Uh, so that wouldn't go like down King well with, with Irish listeners, I- exactly like King Arthur. Um, and this is a tradition that's first mentioned um, by William of Malmesbury, or at least by people who've rewritten William of Malmesbury in the 12th century, but it seems to date back to the 10th century at least. Again, unlikely. I would have thought that the likeliest place is is probably Kellyan. That would be the one that I would go for, which is the, the fort of the legions in Wales. It's the great legionary centre. There would definitely have been Tabernii kind of scattered around it uh, even after the legions had gone um it's within striking distance of the coast and that's important because as we'll go patrick goes on to say he gets captured yeah. by pirates and taken away to ireland so it's so clearly on that the, was west, the, the west the west coast is clearly the obvious place isn't it? It, it it must be on the west coast i mean there is also there is um a, a, an eighth century tradition that he was born in strathclyde so that's beyond hadrian's wall so again like seems- king arthur yeah, again, so he's kind of shifting. But unlike King Arthur, we actually, you know, we don't have first-hand evidence from Arthur himself. No. So we can't even say that Arthur existed. But Patrick, we can. Although, and- Tom, the the St. Patrick of, of, of legend and the St. Patrick of history are two very different beasts. And and some historians, maybe I'm jumping ahead, think that there are multiple different people whose whose lives have found their way into this sort of yeah. the canonical so story of St. Patrick, don't they? So, yeah, so we'll we'll come to that. But if we if we stick for now to what Patrick himself tells us, and then sure. we can ask up first of all how credible Patrick's own account is, yeah, and then how it may have been distorted in subsequent decades. Uh, ironically, and I have to say the one place we know he didn't come from was Ireland. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so he's he's absolutely he is he is British and yeah. he's Roman, yeah, and he self identifies as both. Okay. Um, he's a Roman citizen. He he confesses that as a young man, he wasn't 
um, a particularly good Christian. Uh, age 15, he seems to have done something very naughty for which he gets put on trial. Do we know um, No suspicion at all, Tom? We, he doesn't say what it was. Um, mind boggles. Glue something behind that. The... Yeah, yeah, behind the bus shelter. Then shortly after this, he gets taken by pirates as a slave, he yeah. says. And he gets taken, um, he gets sold. He becomes a herdsman, so uh, looking after cattle probably, um, in uh, the forest of Foklet, he says, which um, I gather maybe is probably County Mayo learns Irish. His Christian faith deepens there. Um, And then one day, six years after his um, abduction, he hears a a voice. And this voice says to him, you have fasted well. Soon you must return to your native land. And then uh, shortly afterwards, again, this voice says, the ship is ready to take you. However, there's a catch because the voice also says that it's not nearby, but 200 (laughs) miles away. And the voice gives and the voice takes away. The voice, because <laughs> to, to be a, a slave, you know, a runaway slave in Ireland is very dangerous. Right. Because Ireland is a place where you essentially, you have to belong essentially to the equivalent of a kind of a gang. You know, there are yeah. all these little monarchies, which again are subordinate to larger monarchies and so on. But basically, if you don't belong, if you don't have an overlord who can give you protection, you're in real danger, and but especially if you're a runaway slave. Right. So the idea that Patrick has has made it 200 miles to where this ship is supposedly waiting for him, the implication is that there is the quality of the miraculous to this. So it's probably not to be taken as just a documentary fact. I was about to ask about all this, though, Tom. I mean, the captured by the pirates could have happened. The voice, I, I think... As secular historians, we would probably say he didn't get a voice telling him that the ship was 200 miles away. Also, the capture by pirates is very biblical. It's very Julius Caesar. It's so entrenched in kind of fables and stuff. It is. It is. So we'll come again. We'll we'll come to that when we we ask how accurate (laughs) the account is. Um, So so Patrick, he arrives. He finds the ship. Um, They refuse to take him on. And he specifies something very interesting, which has provoked a lot of um, speculation. But he says he refuses to suck the breasts of the the people on the ship. Okay, that's an <laughs> that's an unexpected development. <laughs> yes, it who's is. on the ship? That's okay. the question. So, so this, so what does this mean? So, there are scholars who have argued that um, if you're in Ireland and you don't have an overlord to look after you. Yeah. You can become, you can gain the protection of, of a Lord by sucking his nipple. <laughs> uh, I don't, I don't uh, know what to say about that. So, you know, you're, you're, you're traveling through Ireland, uh, you're on holiday, but everywhere you go, you have to s- suck the nipple of the local, the local big wig. That's the, that's the implication. And the, <laughs> the, um, the, the archaeological evidence for this is that um, in 2003, two men were found in, yep. in, in different bogs in Ireland. Uh, they were clearly aristocratic. They, their hands <laughs> were, you know, they, they weren't rough. They weren't peasants. They were clearly aristocrats. Both men had had their nipples surgically removed. <laughs> Why would you have it surgically? Because you were sick of people sucking it. Probably to stop them being kings is the implication. So you can't offer people the nipple. That is so weird. Well, it is weird. And so the other theory yeah. is that um, it's an allusion to a biblical verse. So okay. a verse in Isaiah, you shall suck the milk of the Gentiles. So perhaps okay. that's what... That's sort of more banal, but, but <laughs> probably, but a bit more <laughs> persuasive, I would say, than this business yeah. about doing a road trip and having to... <laughs> suck nipple. Yeah. But I mean, it's something for the Irish tourist authorities perhaps to... Why don't they make more play of that? I mean, madness. Uh, I know. There's a whole advertising campaign there. Yeah. Anyway, so um so basically the um the the people on the ship decide that actually they are going to let him come with them. Um they sail for three days, they land, they then journey for twenty five twenty eight days through a wilderness, the food runs out, they turn around and say, I thought that you were meant to be a chosen one of God, what's yeah. going on? And miraculously a herd of pigs arrive. So they kill the pigs and have a massive barbecue. Uh, that almost so that's happened. Good. Yeah. Um, they then journey for another ten days, mm-hmm. uh, and 
presumably he then arrives at his uh, parents' house or whatever. Doesn't actually specify where he's turned up. Right. But the best, the best thing is that he says uh, that this is 60 days. But obviously, three days on the ship. Yeah. 28 days going through the wilderness. Further 10 days, that doesn't count, count to 60 days. And so do you know what um, Roy Fletchner, who's written uh, the most recent study of, of uh, Patrick's life. I'm not as familiar uh, with Roy Fletchner's work as I should be. Well, he's got a brilliant theory as to uh, what Patrick, you know, why Patrick says 60 when it doesn't add up to 60. <laughs> right. Patrick was simply not very good at maths. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so he, it's a brilliant passage. He goes, through, he goes through all the kind of biblical reasons, perhaps, you know, is he, you know, 40 days? Or, but yeah. he says, basically, there aren't any, you know, this isn't something you can get from the Bible. And he says, maybe he just wasn't very good at maths. Which, That's a very literal approach yeah. to Patrick's story, I would say. Not that I'm dissing Roy Fletchner. No, no, yeah. he's he. I mean, he's very, very alert to the kind of the biblical context okay. for it. But I think it's a it's an interesting and I thought uh, yeah. an engaging. Well, because this is very much Patrick's own writing. Maybe he just wasn't very good at adding things up. You know, we I think don't someone know. would have proofread it though, like a <laughs> copy editor yeah. or something. Right. Anyway, yeah. um, so he's come back. So he comes back. Yeah. Uh, and then the next thing we know, he's about forty-five, and he's become a bishop. That's a leap. Yeah. Uh, and he's uh, he's hanging out in Britain again. Yeah. Um, and while he's with his parents back in Britain, he sees um, a vision of a man called Victoricus. Uh, and this, ma- this man, Victoricus, and nobody has a faintest idea who he is, seems to be coming from Ireland with lots of letters. Uh, and all these letters, when he reads them, are written by people from Ireland saying, please come over and um, we beg you, come and walk among us again. Right. And but hold on. It's- how would people remember him? I mean, if it's, he was just it's a, a vision. Slave. It's a vision. It's a vision. Oh, okay, fine, fine, fine. It's a vision. Fine. Yep. And when you read it, you get this sense of incredible kind of intensity. This okay. is, you know, he he he's seeing this. He's struggling to to put it into words what it, exactly it is he saw. But it's this kind of incredible sense that uh, God wants him to go and preach beyond the Irish Sea in this land that had never been a part of the Roman Empire. Yeah, uh, is you know the epitome of barbarism. For, for for generations of Roman geographers. And Britain is still Roman Britain is still going at this point. He's forty-five. No, which, Roman so, Britain by this point must must I, have must have as I was about to say, we must be post kind of four ten or whatever by now. Yeah. yeah. Um but enough of Roman society survives that he hasn't been troubled by anarchy or something and he's happy to make this journey off to Ireland to, to carry he doesn't the gospel. Say. He doesn't say. He doesn't tell us anything about his life in Britain. Okay. Uh, presumably if he's staying with his... Uh, well, okay, so one thing we can know is that when he crosses to Ireland, he clearly takes quite a lot of movable goods with him. Right. Which enables him to kind of cut a dash. You know, so he's he's a figure of some moment. Yeah. And he, he tells us that... Um, he gets thousands of converts that he gets the sons of, of uh, various Irish Kings converting their daughters uh, becoming nuns. Uh, the Irish Kings don't seem to have liked the daughters becoming nuns. They don't seem to have particularly ejected to the, the sons becoming Christian. And it may be that they're kind of, you know, hedging their, their bets that they're or staying pagan, their sons the, are becoming Christian. Their daughters are maybe more important tools for kind of marriage alliances or something. And they don't want to, you know, them becoming nuns is a bit of a pain. In that, I, yeah. or or nuns allowed to get married at this point? It's probably no, no, they're not. Okay, he is. He's uh, gives us this portrait of uh, an island that has been won by his missionary efforts um, for Christ. That it's a, a church full of missionary zeal. Now, this dovetails with the other piece of writing that that has survived, which is um, a letter that he's written to a man called Caroticus, who seems to be a British, a Romano-British slave trader. Okay, and he has. He has crossed the Irish Sea from Britain and has abducted a, a load of um, Irish converts, probably on Easter Day, and taken them off as slaves. And Patrick is writing, basically excommunicating him, yeah, telling Caroticus that he's you know an absolute rotter, uh, and to hand over the uh, the slaves. Uh, it seems from the letter that. Um, that that this do- isn't very successful and that Caroticus and his followers just kind of laugh at the very idea that they should. Right. But Patrick is Patrick in this letter, you get a sense of this, you know, the power of the holy man. Yeah. His power to curse those who oppose him. Can I ask you a question? Can I jump in now, Tom? Mm. 
Um, you say the power of the holy man. So Peter Brown, who you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, one of the great living history, one of the greatest living historians. One of his early works was about the holy man in late antiquity. And he was talking particularly about holy men in the Eastern Roman Empire and Syria and so on. Does Patrick, do you think, play the same part as being the holy man who comes in and is a kind of arbiter and is a he he stands apart from the traditional power structures and therefore is able to kind of exert a different kind of authority and so on, do you think? Yeah, I'm sure that's part of it. Uh, uh, and I'm sure that um, for reasons that we can't be certain about, he clearly has an, a, a kind of charisma that derives from his claims to a supernatural power. Yeah. And it may be that he brings a kind of a, a sense of the power of, of Rome, but not in such a way as to seem kind of overtly threatening of, yeah. of, of the independence of the various Irish kings, but a, a sense that there is a kind of a greater dimension beyond Ireland that perhaps that the Irish can become a part of. So I was going to ask about that because in the previous podcast, we did, we did you know, a very timely podcast about um, the Vikings in the East and the sort of the origin stories of Russia and Ukraine. And, and one of those stories was about Vladimir the Great and his conversion to Byzantine orthodoxy. And obviously one reason Vladimir does that is because it's political. He wants to ally himself with the great superpower of the Eastern Mediterranean. But the Irish conversion, I mean, if the Roman Empire is dwindling and if Roman power is breaking up in, in Britannia, in a sense, what's in it for them in, in following Patrick? I mean, what, what does Patrick have to offer? Um, and also, Tom, am I not right in thinking? I mean, I'm just basically easily swayed by the the questions from our listeners. Tony Larkin as a question, he says, why doesn't Patrick get the credit for introducing Christianity to Ireland when it seems there were previous missions? So right. is Patrick yeah. the first? And, and why does he in particular have this? Because what's the sort of political subtext to his kind of conversion story? Okay, it is true that um, this is to plunge into the kind of the heart of uh, some of the puzzles that surround what Patrick tells us. So what what is that? What is Patrick doing in his confessio in this account of his life I mean it's it is a biography it is a kind of self-exculpation uh he is clearly he's being attacked by people he's um he's trying to defend himself against kind of various charges that are never quite stated so that's absolutely part of it as well but it is as I said at the beginning it is absolutely a statement of mission Mm -hmm. it's a sense that he's been called by Christ to take the gospel to lands beyond the Roman world. Now, the the questioner is absolutely right that he is not alone in going to Ireland, it seems, because um, there is another figure who has not at all kind of entered the mainstream of, of Irish folklore or Catholic piety, a guy called Palladius. Whereas we have no contemporary references to Patrick, outside his writings. With Palladius, we don't have his writings, but we do have references to him in authenticated uh, chronicles of the time. So he's mentioned by a guy called Prosper of Aquitaine in his, who's writing kind of annals of the years as they go by. And Prosper, he's right in his, um, he's in Aquitaine, so he's distant from Ireland, but he writes in 431 that in that year, Palladius, who had been consecrated by Pope Celestine, is sent as the first bishop to the Irish believers in Christ. So what's the relationship of, of Palladius and Patrick? Are they the same person? Well, so th- this was the argument that um, a scholar called Thomas Francis O'Rahili in 1942 put forward. Uh, and his theory was that there was uh, the Patrick that we know, the, the guy who's written the Confessio, but that um, Palladius was also, he was a patrician, so he was Palladius Patricius, and that he was the first guy to go there. Yeah. So that's the thesis. And it's it's a thesis that remains kind of very, very current. But I think there is a telling difference between um, Palladius and Patrick, which is that Prosper says of Palladius that he's sent to the Irish as their, uh, to the Irish believers in Christ who are already in Ireland. So presumably those are slaves, British slaves, perhaps, or, right. or yeah, Gallic slaves who've yeah. been taken to Ireland. Um, and Celestine himself, the Pope who's sending um Palladius had specified that bishops should only go to places where they're wanted. And so what you have there is an echo of the assumption that was absolutely hardwired into the Romans and preceded the conversion of the empire to Christianity, 
that the fruits of Roman civilization should not wantonly be bestowed on barbarians. And the kind of the Christian manifestation of that is the assumption that Christianity is for people within the limits of the empire. Right. So this is something that is being, so Augustine, the saint who we talked about in the, 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 the episode on the fall of the empire, the, the, the great bishop of um, Hippo in North Africa, who is um, essentially arguing why it doesn't really matter that Rome falls because ultimately what matters is that the church survives. He is starting to, he he's kind of groping his way towards an idea that the Christian mission is for everybody. It's for people beyond the limits of the empire yes, as well as for those yeah. within. But he, even he doesn't kind of quite arrive at the conclusion that you, uh, that you get with, with Patrick, because the key thing about Patrick is, and this is the Patrick of the confessio, the, the, the guy who we've been talking about, his assumption is that the gospel should be taken beyond the seas to, to people who know nothing about it at all. And that's what makes him such a revolutionary figure, right? I mean, that's what makes him an extraordinary, groundbreaking figure in the late Roman world. Is that right? It does. And I will qu- a quote again from, from um, Peter Brown, the great historian of the holy man in late antiquity. And he says of Patrick's originality was that no one within Western Christendom had thought such thoughts as these before had ever previously been possessed by such convictions. Um, he's the first person basically to to get the sense that um, barbarians living beyond the frontiers of the empire, that they should be brought to Christ. And this is, I think, a kind of mo- momentous development because it means that um, the Irish church, as it comes to to, to flourish and grow, is committed to the idea that um, missions should be sent. Yeah. And this is, you know, how the Irish saved civilization. That's the, you know, how Thomas Carhill in his book frames it. Yes. The impulse for Irish saints to go, to go into exile, you know, whether that is to uh, Skellig Michael, this kind of remote uh, island off Ireland, which the, um, you'll know is in Star Wars. Yeah. In the yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. Or to like St. Brendan to take ship and go out into the Atlantic and discover perhaps new worlds there. I was about to say, uh, didn't Irish missionaries go to Iceland? Isn't that to it? go to Iceland, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, and of course, famously, uh, St. Columbanus goes to Gaul uh, and establishes a kind of great missionary tradition there. And St. Columba, uh, he goes to uh, to Iona and establishes, he, he starts the kind of the process of bringing Christ to um, to the Picts but also to the angles of Northumbria. Uh, And that kind of sense of the missionary tradition becomes an important part of the Anglo-Saxon church and then in turn inspires Anglo-Saxon missionaries to go to to Saxony and to Germany and to to, to Scandinavia. So it is, I think, a kind of... uh, Patrick is, for that reason, a, a really significant figure. Okay. Tom, I think we should take a break because while you've been talking, listeners may be wondering why I've been quite quiet. That's because you've been talking about St. Patrick and I've been basically devoting my attention to my free beers from Beer 52. Uh, So I've just finished my um, O Brother Brewing Company Milk Stout, which I have to say, Tom, was delicious. Very rich, velvety, a a lovely drink. And uh, how have you been getting on while you've been chatting? Well, I haven't, I haven't had a chance because I've just been jabbering away. Oh, that but, is poor. Uh, but if we, but, you've no, really but missed if we, out. What folly! But if we're if we're going to um, for a break now, I can um, have a quick sip. Well, listen in the commercial break, and then uh, and then before crack on before the you half. do that, Tom, I think it would be remiss of me not to say to people that if you want to taste them for yourself, you should go to beer52.com/slash/ireland to claim your free case. And we will be back after the break with more on St Patrick and uh, some more on the beer. Goodbye. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. 
Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. And as if you didn't know, uh, sponsored this week by Beer 52. Now, Beer 52, I know you all want to hear a lot more about Beer 52 and probably less from Tom about St. Patrick. Uh, Beer 52 is actually the biggest beer club in the world. And every month they send their members a case of beer from a different part of the world. And wouldn't you know it, for this month, being St. Patrick's Day, it is Ireland. Tom, have you chosen your beer for part two of the podcast? I have. I have. I have, Dominic. What is Uh, it? I it's um, it's an Irish lager from O'Hara's Brewing Company. A, a, a fine drink, Tom. I heartily, heartily recommend it. I had that while you were talking about pirates and Christianity and stuff. Um, it has watered my tonsils. <laughs> Splendid. <laughs> Splendid. So that I'm now now able to continue with St. Patrick. So that's beer52.com forward slash Ireland. And that's the word beer, the numbers 52.com forward slash ireland so so now on to the other the other business of the podcast which is st patrick so let's talk about the kidnap because you hinted in the first half that the kidnap by the pirates that there may be more to that than meets the eye and indeed tom shockingly it may not have happened so what's going on this is the thesis of roy fletchner uh whose book st patrick retold is really fantastic yeah, uh, and fizzing with all kinds of brilliant fizzing like a, like a like a fizzing like a like a like a a New England IPA or an Irish lager from O'Hara's Brewing Company. Exactly, brilliantly so, done. Dominic. Brilliantly exactly done. Exactly so. Yes. Please keep these promotional um, inquiries coming to other other <laughs> other companies. Uh, and he he asks, was Patrick really kidnapped? Right. So. The context for this is that there is a lot of kidnapping and slaving going on. Yeah. I mean, no, no one questions that. Yeah. Uh, we, we have in Roman historians, uh, you know, there are accounts of kind of meltdown in Roman Britain and Irish raiders are part of the kind of uh, consortium of Picts and Saxons and all these other guys who are kind of breaking into Roman Britain. So we, we absolutely know that that is going on. Um, we also know that there are so many slaves in um in Ireland, that the word for a slave girl becomes a kind of, you know, it comes to denote a, a unit of value in exchange. So, what is it? That, uh, a kumal. Okay. I hope that uh, it's probably pronounced completely Gaelic speakers different. Speakers will. Uh, yes, but to be I fair, know. you're on your sixth beer of the podcast. <laughs> I mean, you can be excused. <laughs> I'll be absolutely fluent in it by the uh, <laughs> but by the end. To that extent, it's you know, it's entirely plausible that Patrick might have been taken. However, you know, we, we looked at the, the implausibility of the fact that he might, you know, did he really manage to walk 200 miles to a ship? You yeah. know, but again, you could say maybe, or maybe, as you said, it's a kind of, you know, it's a biblical illusion or whatever. The theory that, that Fletchner puts forward in his book, he goes back to look at um, the role that Patrick's father is playing in the Curia, in the kind of the town council of wherever this place is that he's growing up. Um. And he he points out that there were a lot of kind of civic responsibilities, a lot of weight put on the shoulder of those with land and property and slaves and possessions that kind of obliged you essentially to um, to, to contribute your time and your money to caring for the city. And that in the kind of the, the, the dying days of the Roman Empire in the West, quite a lot of the elites got fed up with this and tried to kind of wriggle out of their responsibilities. And his thesis is that actually um, what what Patrick is perhaps has done and perhaps what he's justifying in the confessio. So he keeps kind of emphasizing again and again, I was kidnapped, right. kind of implying that people have been saying, well, maybe you weren't. <laughs> Fletcher's argument is that um, perhaps he, he was a tax exile. So before he just before he becomes 16, when he comes of age, perhaps he took 
you know, his inheritance and went to Ireland and hung out there for six years. God, that's and then a, the Roman thought, Empire collapsed and then came back. I thought I was being cynical in this podcast, but I mean, that's a very, very cynical view of St. Patrick's behaviour, isn't it? Yeah, it is quite. Do you, I mean, <laughs> what do you think? Do you think, do you, do you buy well, that I think, argument? I think, I think the problem with that is that it absolutely requires Patrick to have been born at a time when the frameworks of Roman rule are secure enough that you get in trouble. Yeah. You know, that the whip hand of central Roman government is pretty strong. Yes. Which then requires you to push Patrick's birth perhaps to, you know, I don't know, 380 or something right, like that. Further back into the fourth yeah. century. Yeah. And there's and there's kind of further you know, there are kind of other pieces of evidence within the Confessio that suggest that actually Patrick died kind of certainly second half of the fifth century. So it's it's tricky. It requires Patrick to have been very cynical and self interested early in his life and then to have this miraculous transformation into a much more altruistic figure later on, doesn't it? I mean that's yeah, not well, impossible, that's, I suppose. That that's not impossible, and that of course is you know, the archetype of that is uh, Saul. Yeah. Who persecutes the church and then becomes the yeah. you know well, as saint paul becomes the kind of the great missionary or augustine uh, and a, i suppose yeah or augustine but paul perhaps is is the obvious example because he's the great missionary so he's going out in converting those who know nothing about christ yeah. so i don't know i mean we we the, the truth is we will never know okay well that's a very we'll depressing never thing know. to say in a history podcast but tom i don't think it is i don't think it is because i think the fact that it, it's the fact of what we do know that's exciting you know, as I said at the beginning, because otherwise we know nothing about this period. We have no rec- written sources written by someone from Britain at all okay. from this period. So well, that's what makes it so exciting. Let's push on a bit, Tom, because uh, I'm keen to get back eventually to the beers. Um, <laughs> Patrick dies when, do we reckon? You say that basically the second half of the 5th century, or is that too late? Well, we're given two dates in right. subsequent chronicles. Uh, yes. One is 457, one is 493. Okay. I mean, so, that's quite a big... You know, you pay your money, you take your choice. Okay. Uh, and of course, it's perfectly possible that neither of them are correct. But it is what indeed. that does suggest is that the tradition is that he died in the second half of the 5th century. Does that imply there could be two different people, though, again, that died in those two years? Or do you Possibly. Think that's so that's, so, so that, that, is, that is the thesis that maybe the first Patrick died in, uh, in 457 and the second one in 493. Yeah. So that has been argued. And then obviously after that point, he, he has this tremendous afterlife. So he, he does, he does yeah. to go back to Tony Larkin's question, he does get the credit for introducing Christianity. He is seen as the kind of father of Irish Christian identity. Well. How does that, yeah, come on then. Well, how well, does that happen? Okay, he's one of two people who can test for that. Actually, the person who really gets, you know, in the Middle Ages is Bridget, who you fans of yeah. the World Cup of Gods will remember. Well, they um, won't because she, did, she crashed out so early, Tom. Yeah, she did. <laughs> so St. Bridget of Kildare is, is Patrick's great rival as the kind of the the alpha saint yeah the uber saint for, for ireland um and that ref- so kildare is in south ireland patrick is associated with with armagh in the north of ireland in ulster again and again when you look at the posthumous reputations of saints and indeed of holy men so you could say the same about muhammad it really matters the places that they're associated with because the posthumous holiness that they shed gives power and authority and prestige to these places and they become centers of pilgrimage um the authority of the person who may have founded the church or you know the mosque or whatever becomes incredibly important yeah um and essentially what the what the um what the monks of armar are doing is bigging up patrick in almost every way they can so there is a slight problem that he's not buried there um he's he's buried at down patrick yeah um, down county down and so they have to come up with a reason for why he's there. And so they say that he was in Armagh. Um, he died there, but then the angels took his body to, uh, to Down Patrick. And of course, the people in Glastonbury would say that he's, he died in Glastonbury. So, yes. you know, there is this kind of, you know, it's like Greeks fighting over the bodies at, of the dead at, at, before Troy. People, it really matters where these saints end up. Anyway, so it's a problem that he's not buried Armagh, but not an insuperable one. Um. The monks of Armagh produce uh, certainly two biographies of him um, from the late uh, the late seventh century, so kind of six nineties that have survived. Now the question is, of course, how reliable are these? 
Yeah. And it's in these biographies that you get the accounts that most people will have heard of Patrick confronting Druids. Right. Yes, I want to talk about this. Yeah. So he, uh, the high king of the Irish at Tara, has a, a, a whole load of Druids around him. No one is allowed to uh, to light a fire at Easter. Patrick lights a fire. And the Druids look out and they say, unless this fire is extinguished, then verily I say unto thee, a fire shall be lit that will never be extinguished at all. Kind of words to that effect. Wow, that's very uh, Cranmer, Archbishop Cranmer, isn't it? Um, <laughs> at the, at the Martyrs Memorial. Well, well yeah, yeah, t- I suppose. But actually, of course, what it is, it's Patrick confronting uh, a posse of pagan sorcerers. It's Moses confronting right. the, the, the priests of you know Egypt in front of Pharaoh. It's um, Elijah confronting the priests of Baal. Um, these are kind of archetypal stories with very, very obvious biblical I mean, precursors. The problem, Tom, so, with all these sources though, isn't it? I mean, this is the problem with all sources written in this period or indeed earlier, that they all have ultimately kind of devolve into archetypes. And when you dig into the stories, it's very hard to tell what specific truth and what is yeah. purely a kind of a formula. It absolutely is. And so um Caroticus, for instance, the the Romano British slave trader, um one of these saints' lives written in the, in the 690s says that um, he was a, a British king, that he uh, ruled uh, in Strathclyde, so presumably on the great rock of Dumbarton, the yeah. kingdom of Alclut. Um, but if you're tempted to believe that as, a, as an authentic uh, de- you know, an authentic report, you then face the problem that this life also says that when Caroticus died, he turned into a fox. <laughs> so how you kind of integrate that into... <laughs> yeah. Yes. So 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 it's a it's a it's a problem. Um there is one perhaps one intriguing fragment of evidence that does preserve an authentic detail. Um and this was uh, it appeared I read it on a a blog post that's devoted to um to rude words. Golly, you're really insults. yeah, you're doing the absolute forensic research here, Tom. And uh, it's written by Vox Hiberionicum. Yeah, uh, who has an excellent Twitter account, uh, which I commend. Um, and he gives this account uh, of uh, Patrick is sleeping on the Sunday, on the Sabbath, day of rest, and the pagans are busy working. I think they're digging a moat or something. Patrick tells them to stop. The pagans tell him to piss off. And then, and I quote, Holy Patrick said, a mudder broth, in spite of all your labour, you shall achieve nothing. And so it happened. The following night, there came a heavy storm and stirred up the sea, and the storm destroyed all that the pagans had done as the man of God had said. Now, what I read there in English is written in the original in Latin. Yeah. But mudderbroth, yeah. that's not a Latin word. That, I gather, from is a Britonic word. So that's a, the language that Patrick would have spoken as a Briton. Yeah. Apparently, mudderbroth is a kind of jumble of various, you know, of three Britonic words. And, and I... You know, I speak with no expertise here whatsoever. I'm merely reporting what is written in this fascinating article that it that it means may God's judgment be on you or may God's doom be on you. So perhaps that is uh, an authentic, uh, authentic patrician sense. swear word or right. exposition. Well, Tom, we we we're we're whizzing through. Um, the, the I mean, time is is kind of catching up with us. So I would like to get on to 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 two more aspects in particular before we turn to the question of purgatory. One of those is snakes. Now, it's well known that St. Patrick cast the snakes out of Ireland, but I think I'm right in saying there never were any snakes in Ireland. Is that correct? Yeah, well, there's an excellent question from Huel George. Should Patrick be considered an ecological villain for reducing the serpentine biodiversity of Ireland? But he didn't. He shouldn't. There, there, aren't, there, there <laughs> yeah. never were any snakes. There never were any snakes. I'm not, an, I'm not a natural historian, so I don't know why there were never any snakes, but there just weren't, were there? Well, they never crossed the Irish Sea. Um, no. So... Who, who knows why not? They, just they couldn't didn't... swim. They couldn't swim. Right. Okay. So that's the end of the snakes. What about the shamrocks? Well, no. Oh, you want to say something about snakes? Well, no, it's just that um, the, the way that this legend grows up is interesting because it was noted by, you know, Roman geographers noted that there was no snakes in yeah. in Ireland. I mean, they understood that. Um, and the legend that um, a, a Christian holy man had banished them, it's not original to Patrick, so it gets associated with St. Columba, I think, first of all. Um, Speed reports that uh, reptiles, pers- you know, full sweep can, can't survive in Ireland, that it, it just kills them the moment they, they land there. Um, and then the story seems to have originated around 12th, 13th yeah, centuries. so much later. Um, I mean, but basically almost a thousand years later. 
Well, even then you get skepticism. So Gerald of Wales, yeah. who is very skeptical about almost everything that the Irish say, um, he's very, very contemptuous of the whole idea. It is more probable that from the earliest times and long before the foundation of the faith, this island was naturally without them. Okay, so now let's take the the other great thing that people know about St. Patrick, which is that he waved shamrocks around to demonstrate the truth of the Trinity. Um, Is this also untrue, Tom? The earliest attestation is uh, 1680s. Yes, I saw that. So So very late. So more than a thousand years after the event. So almost certainly not not true. So how did the shamrock come to be associated with St. Patrick? Or is it purely just a sort of creation of, 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 of early modern stroke modern nationalism, would you say? Yeah, well, so 1680s is obviously, I mean, you know, that's um, the, 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 the backdrop is heightened Catholic Protestant tension, particularly yeah. in Ireland. Um, so presumably the, the, that is the context for it. It's Protestants and Catholics competing over yeah, of course. Patrick. And then this question about purgatory. I mean, I'm actually yeah. just reading that out of off your notes, so I don't know what it has, what it refers to at all. I'm not going to pretend any knowledge. Well, so in the Middle Ages, the story arises that um, this island in County Donegal is an entranceway to purgatory, oh. and the story goes that Patrick was shown it by Christ Himself, and this is well, I mean, relative to the the shamrock, this is quite early. So this is um, uh, 12th century, late 12th century. Yeah, and pilgrims would go there. And there were kind of very, very detailed accounts of what people saw in it. Um, and there's a brilliant account of this. This is how I came across the story in Stephen Greenblatt, the great Shakespeare scholar. He wrote a book called Hamlet in Purgatory. Yeah. Uh, and he writes wonderfully about this. Um, and inevitably, I'm afraid it got shut down by Protestants. I was going to say Thomas, 1632, Thomas Cromwell so, would not be pleased with this story. No, nor, nor Oliver. So uh, I think it is, I think, I think the Franciscans run it today but i think you can't go into the cave and look for purgatory but that's another another way in which the yeah. legends of patrick has kind of woven itself into the 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 flora and the fauna and the the natural environment in ireland and then if we sort of fast forward now because we, we are quite close to the end if we fast forward to the to the to the present day st patrick and st patrick's day has obviously become as is so often the way um the, one of the great drivers for it is kind of irish americans and so you have um uh, St. Patrick's Day parades among kind of Irish communities in American cities from especially gathering strength in the sort of late 19th century and then throughout the 20th century and obviously now completely institutionalized. And there is this sort of thing now that, you know, that the T-shirt will go to um, the White House and present the president with a bowl of shamrocks and all this kind of stuff. But also that a member of the British royal family will present the Irish guards with a bowl of shamrocks and all this kind of thing. But do you think, Tom that this still has a kind of religious dimension. And in particular, do you think it also has a dimension of, I mean, it's odd, isn't it, that um, St. Patrick has become this this symbol of Ireland, and, and to some extent, I guess, of Irish Catholicism, of Catholic Ireland, when he wasn't Irish. I mean, that's a kind of strange thing, isn't it? Well, I, th- I think that that's what makes his story so, I mean, it's one that people can absolutely adapt. So obviously, one of the reasons why Patrick's Day becomes so important in America is that Irish people who have traveled across the Atlantic to the New World are, you know, they, they're immigrants. Yeah. Just as Patrick was. They've kind of reenacted his voyage in a sense. Yeah. Exactly. And actually, um, in, uh, in 2017, when um, Ender Kenny went to uh, Patrick's Day to the White House and Trump was in the White House, and Kenny very pointedly said that, um, St. Patrick is the patron saint of of immigrants. Um, yeah, nudge, nudge, nudging Trump in the in the rib. So I think that that's kind of very helpful. I think yes. Uh, so Patrick is claimed by both Catholics and Protestants. So Amar, mm-hmm. you know, the great cult center of Patrick, is it, it got taken over by the Church of Ireland. Yeah, I think that in uh, you know in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, he obviously became associated with Irish nationalism and therefore with the, the kind of the Catholic strain of that. So that's also um, very much a kind of part of it. So it becomes a um, a national holiday in Ireland in nineteen oh three. Yeah, you know the prompting of a, an Irish nationalist MP, MP in yes, I uh, Westminster, yeah. and uh, but also they 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 specify that the pubs should be shut. 
on that day. Well, there's always been a slight tension. What it might encourage that. There's always. I think it's only kind of early 1960s that they're finally legally allowed. That's right. There's always been that tension between the purely Christian kind of Catholic um, observance of St Patrick's Day, but also what is obviously worn out in the long run, which is the sort of hedonistic, yeah, um, sort of uh, the very what you might I suppose call the Irish American kind of St Patrick's Day, which is all about kind of drinking and and partying in the streets and wearing green hats and. And sort of stuff. Uh, Irish beer, orange beards, orange beards, which a lot of Irish people actually find quite offensive. Yeah, um, it's a weird thing, isn't it? The sort of the chasm between Ireland and Irish America. I remember once when I lived in Minnesota, going to they had an Irish shop in um, Saint Paul, Minnesota, and it was all orange beards and pictures of leprechauns and stuff. But also the kind of the kind of you know the kind of very Catholic kind of the, the crosses and that kind of imagery and the sort of combination of the two things. But I sort of wondered even at the time. What would so a visitor from you know nineteen nineties Dublin make of make of this this sort of kitsch side of their own national identity? Well, I'm sure it's not a coincidence that um, the the kind of the transformation of St Patrick's Day into a kind of bacchanal has coincided with the collapse of uh, the Catholic Church as yeah. the you know the source of of uh, kind of prestige and, and morality within Ireland. Um, and I think that also quite a lot of the um, the stuff about the druids, the stuff about the snakes. If you're kind of new agey, if you're into, uh, you know, leprechauns, let's use leprechauns as a kind of shorthand for the, the idea of Ireland as a, a mystical land haunted by spirits, then actually Patrick is a, a faintly sinister figure because he yeah. banishes them. Okay. So I think there's kind of interesting tension there. Well, Tom, I think we should just end with the Bacchanal. Um, for obvious yes, let's, reasons, let's go to, um, let's go to the back of because I'm curious to know how you've got on with your uh, your free beers from Beer Fifty Two. What it is now, kind of eleven o'clock. Yeah, I'm going to so just going. I mean, that's normally the time finish, where I where finish I, the crate where I start drinking. Anyway, to be honest with you, I've I've <laughs> I've done the case now. I was doing while well, you were, I was polishing. How it many off. have you had? Um, eight, all eight. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can. I think you can. Looking on the thing, you can actually order ten if you want. I'm I'm going to order another case. Actually, I enjoyed it so much. Uh, so, which you can do with the, with the special offer, right? Yeah, you can. Well, you can claim your free case. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing. I, I've had my free case, so I'll probably buy another one. But listeners will be able to claim a free one at beer fifty two dot com slash Ireland. That is beer in the numbers fifty two dot com slash Ireland. And they'll Tom. The amazing thing is, they'll only need to pay for the postage, which is five pounds ninety five. Beer fifty two are the world's biggest beer club. They'll send you a case every month, and it's much, much, and I can absolutely vouch for this, much more enjoyable than the bland mass produced oh, lagers yeah. you might God. find in the supermarket. There's no comparison. Is that right, Dominic? There's no comparison, no comparison at all. At all. Uh, and if dark beer is not your thing, you can choose the light only case. Uh, and also included is an island themed ferment magazine and a couple of snacks. And the snacks are excellent too. I might have them for lunch. <laughs> uh, and if you're not enjoying it, which you absolutely will enjoy it, uh, you can simply pause or cancel. Anytime. So that is beer52.com slash Ireland. And people who listen to our Dickensian and Christmas Carol theme podcast will know that I shall be saving a glass for Tiny Tom. And on that note, we wish you a very happy St. Patrick's Day and goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. It was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. 